Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Sandy Lowe joining me. Now Sandy is based in Germany where she works as a talent scout in the international fashion industry and she also runs Brown Skin Mermaids which is a not-for-profit organisation that offers free safe spaces and empowerment workshops for young black girls in Germany. Sandy is going to share with us her journey with anorexia and bulimia and how racial trauma has impacted her mental health. Thank you so much for joining me, Sandy. Thank you so much for having me today and uh, giving me this uh, platform. I'd like to begin with you giving our listeners an insight into your own eating disorder journey. Well, my eating disorder started at 15, as far as I can remember, that I really had these like anorexic thoughts and um, started to actually um, well practice some of the symptoms that I've developed. But I'm pretty sure that I had been struggling with depression before, like since I can remember that I've been basically a very fat child, if that makes sense. I mean, now looking back, I didn't feel that way when I was um, that young. But looking back, I think my problem started much earlier. But with the eating disorder, it was definitely at like the summer of 15, going 16, that I started with... um, yeah, anorexic, anorexic behaviors. Yeah, and then later on, I think once I um, moved out on my own, which was at 17, so after two years, was when I really, like, got really bad. And um, I went to South Africa for a few months after school because I didn't know what I wanted to do, what I wanted to, you know, study or which job I wanted to do. So I went to South Africa for a while. And that's actually where it got worse because I had no plan for my life. I didn't know who I was, who I wanted to be. So actually the eating disorder then was really what kept me, you know, busy and what kept me going through these times. And from there, I think 18, 19 actually was when I um, developed bulimia because I've been starving myself. For so long that I would just start, you know, start, start to like binge and develop bulimia. 
for six, seven years of my life. Yeah. And then when did the bulimia end? Well, I wouldn't say that it has 100% ended uh, in that sense, but it's definitely looking back to where I was, I don't know, three years ago or five years ago. My life is, you know, has changed completely in so many ways that I would never think that I could live my life as I do right now. So um, I'd learned that I will never, you know, I may not love myself every single day and I don't have to, and that's fine. But um, as I said, just looking back and realizing the the progress that I've made um, is definitely, um, yeah, I'm proud of that, honestly, because I didn't think that I could, you know, really turn in that way. And, um, but doing the past, um two years um yeah I definitely got so much better um yeah it was a long way and I really had to figure it out for myself but uh, you You should be so proud of yourself (laughs) thank you huge huge achievement (laughs) did you receive any formal treatment during those years well I've seen actually quite a few therapists um throughout all these years um I've seen inpatient um, at the age of 18. Um, well, the thing is that in Germany, which I think is very good, or I don't know how it is for other European countries, probably kind of the same rule that you do. Actually, we were privileged when it comes to, you know, being able to enter treatment. And um, it's expenses are usually getting covered unless you go like to a private, you know, hospital. And I think that Germany is very developed with general um, treatment for eating disorders. Like we do have a lot of spaces. Just, um, yeah, well, they're all white. <laughs> it's, it's just a medicine in general. So it's not really like Germany. It's exception, um, of course. But um, I received treatment, yes, and I've tried therapists. Even, I think, two years ago or before the whole lockdown happened um, for the first time was when I went to see a therapist again. Not particular for my eating disorder, but just because I felt like there was so much still, you know, that, that I felt like I could work on. And just, you know, looking back on all these years that I've spent with my eating disorder, that it was good to reflect and maybe not do it like all alone. And I really had issues to, uh, yeah, find a therapist for me. I actually, after I think six months where we had break, uh, breaks, um, I flew with her as well because my issue with treatment was that wherever I went, I just didn't feel like um, I was understood, you know, um, that a lot of problems that I had that when I was younger, I couldn't even name myself, were just not recognized. And in order to, I think, treat someone, um, you need to be able to recognize what's going on, you know, what's under under the whole eating disorder facade and um that was really an issue for me, yeah. To find someone who would understand what I was going through. I think it's one of the most important things when trying to find mm-hmm. a treatment team is that therapeutic connection and is that that level of, of understanding and empathy. Um and even if, you know, they don't understand completely their um their Willingness to do their own research, uh, reading around different things so that they can gain as much of an understanding as possible about um, about the things that you've been through and, and situations so that they can they can help you through through. 
I think that therapeutic connection is essential. Yeah, it is very much. I mean, I've been also gaslighted a lot by therapists, you know, um, especially when it comes to like your racial experiences, um, not even going to like particular situations or talking about, you know, the system in Germany, you know, just like my personal experience with like small things that happened to me in school or how I was growing up. It was always like, well, um, I don't think it's really what this is about or what we're here for, you know, just refusing to see the connection between the potential, um, yeah, the potential of danger of developing an eating disorder or any mental illness due to our racial trauma. I mean, it's something that's just not being spoken about a lot. Um, I think maybe also not, you know, researched enough until today, maybe. I mean, it's not really, there are no books about, you know, it's really just mainly people speaking about their own experience. And I think now, maybe with social media, the message is a bit more clear. There's a bit more information, but it's not comparable to like, there's no um, statistic, you know, it's not comparable to what we have from like white medicine and white psychologists, um, what they've wrote down about eating disorders. Um, so you always feel, oh, I always felt like, well, I, I cannot prove that it's true because I don't have the statistics that other people have. I cannot prove that there is an issue with, for example, um, suicide and that a lot of black teens end up taking their own life because of racism. I cannot speak about it because I don't, I can't prove it. You know what I mean? That's what I saw for a long time. Like my own feelings also were not valid enough in my head because there is no statistic about um, eating disorders due to like identi um, identification problems or, you know, just yeah, racial experience. So actually I needed a long time, probably like six years myself to see the link because I didn't know either, you know. So I didn't have that information. Yeah. What did it feel like for you when you were in the midst, you know, in the real, real depths of your eating disorder? How would you describe it to someone? I think that eating disorder, especially bulimia, for me, um, bulimia was always the worst eating disorder because I, you know, coming from like very strict anorexia, I've lost, lost all the control over everything. That's how I felt. So I think that was definitely during that time uh, when my um, bulimia has been really present for the first time. I think that was like my lowest point from like mentally, I felt like the lowest. And it was just a very um, lonely time, you know, it's very, it's like a secret disease. And I was still working a job on that time, a different job, but I still had to like function, you know, and get up every day and just pretend that everything is all right. And everyone, every single person around me thought that everything was all right because I've gained weight after, you know, anorexia, I've looked better. And I think for me, that was the worst time of my life when just still people believing you're doing great because you look better. And you know that for me, I, I've never felt that low ever before, you know, not with anorexia, not with any other issue. Like that was the lowest point and everyone thought it wasn't because I've been weight. Um, so yeah, that was a very horrible time to a point where I just didn't know if I was, you know, wanted to actually continue to like, 
my life or, you know, I really have to make the decision for myself. I want to go on or, you know, not. Because it's a very, very lonely, um, it's a very lonely situation to be in, you know. Yeah, I think it was a dark time. It was very lonely. Um, Just, I don't know, I didn't feel a lot. Just, just very tired. Mm. And I think <laughs> this is the thing because we're not nourished. There isn't a lot to feel yeah. other than, as you say, it's lonely, it's miserable, feels like Groundhog Day. And, you know, being misunderstood is just really, really hard, especially with that that sort of perception that's still out there, unfortunately, around, oh, look, you're looking so much better and therefore you must be better. And it's incredibly, incredibly damaging when you're still often sometimes when someone's weight restoring what looks to the outside world as being better, quotation marks, yeah. can often mean that their head is raging are stronger than ever before and people just don't understand that yeah this is exactly how it was for me as well and i didn't know either you know i thought i was crazy like um i have to feel better everybody you know told me that i'm better i went into treatment i'm supposed to be better <laughs> like why didn't it work and what's wrong with me like what's my issue so i thought okay maybe i'm just you know, I don't know, lazy or crazy. And I mean, I think especially around bulimia, like there's so much shame around this disorder that I didn't even um, dare to like tell anyone at the beginning, you know, because I was a thin girl. I came out of anorexia, I was thin as, which I know doesn't mean particularly mean that you have to be underweight because when my anorexia started, I wasn't underweight either. I mean, I, I've never been overweight. Um, but, um, yeah, there were also times I had a lot of anorexic thoughts and just, uh, you know, so people would assume that I was doing fine because I looked better, you know, so, um, but I think, yeah, especially around bulimia, there's so much shame, so it makes it even harder to talk about. And, um, again, I guess the race issue itself, I've never, I think it was like, actually, last year for the first time that I heard from a black woman speaking about eating disorders that was on YouTube <laughs> and that was a year ago when I was like I was so wild I was like oh my gosh so I mean I knew I'm not the only one but I was like okay well you are not the only one it's just there is no you know the voices are not may, maybe there I don't know maybe they're just not being heard but I have never seen that before, so, yeah, which makes it harder, I think, as well, to speak up. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it just um, reinforces the shame and the stigma, and if you can't see yourself represented in the voices um, of lived experience that are speaking up, uh, it's it's hard. It's really, really hard, and hopefully, um, and that's why I'm so appreciative of you coming on here today, because hopefully there will be uh, lots of other um, men and women out there who who see themselves represented and go, oh my goodness, you know, I finally feel um, feel understood and, and like I'm not the only one. So that's why doing these things are so important and I can't, can't reiterate enough how appreciative I am to have you here with me today. You know, you talked before about those moments where you just really felt just completely hopeless. 
and like, can I even go on with my life? How did you, what pulled you through? That's a very good question. Um, I think just, uh, you know, the thought of that you can always go back, that makes sense. Like you can always go back to your darkest point. Um, nobody, that's what helped me is just to really realize, I don't know if it's as stupid as it may sound to someone with a, like who is healthy, <laughs> is that I'm not forced to be in this world, you know. I'm not forced to recover. If I do this, I'm doing this for myself, nobody else. And, um, you know, this is my life and I don't want to throw my life away because of some, some illness. And, um, I think it's just something that I realized that, okay, you only have one life. And before that, I used to feel that I have to get better in order to function for other people. And, uh, once I realized that this is, you know, this is my, my thing, I went through this. So I have, I can take up all the, you know, all the credit of my own life and just, recover from myself, I think that was what really like helped me to just think of um, you know, doing it for myself and um appreciate myself enough to, you know, not end my life at like twenty three. Um I think was the biggest motivation. And I mean right now these days I'm I'm very, very happy to to be alive, you know, and that I didn't that I choose the right uh, the right thing to do and um yeah, and I just think the sort of you know that you can always go back is kind of like makes me made me feel safer um I've never felt the desire to you know go back to to that point, but you know just like yeah you you can go back you can you should try at least you have to try you know you have to try life <laughs> and you know so think that yeah. I told myself exactly the same thing. I was like, yeah. goodness sake, give it a go. You can go back, go running back to it if that's what yeah. you really want to do. Oh, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's worth trying to say, buddy, you know, telling how great life can be. So maybe I should give it a try. Yeah, maybe, yeah. just maybe <laughs> I should. Yeah. yeah. Have you come to a place of acceptance now with your body? I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm very tall. I used to always have issues also with my height, or I was too tall, and then, you know, a, a bit too much of everything in that sense. But um, I think that these days, especially in the last month, last, or throughout the last 12 months, um, I accepted my body in that way that, I mean, I think I still have work to do mentally, and um, just in general, I'm, I'm not afraid of my body changing anymore as much as I, you know, used to be. Like, I'm not freaking out if it's, like, recently I've been on a vacation and um, it was just one of the best vacations that I ever had without actually being, you know, the gym work was closed, gyms were closed due to our um, corona restrictions and I didn't care, <laughs> you know, that was new to me, you know, and I was just like, okay, well, it's not always about, you know, having the control over, you know, if you should work out or, eat healthy while you're away it's just yeah that was just another realization that how how far I've came with my thoughts and how um yeah I think I accepted my body in a in that sense that I would never as in my eyes back then reach that you know perfect body that I wanted to have and I mean I like my body as it is and then I also used to think that maybe I was you know when I was 
before I got sick, people would also mock me for being tall and skinny already, you know, naturally. So that's another thing that I accepted. I would never have also like, you know, curves like other women. I am tall and slim, you know, naturally. I'm not sickly skinny anymore. And, but I'm never going to be the person who has like, you know, this, as maybe society would say like sexy curves or whatever. So people will always have something negative to say about you or about your body. So it's really about accepting it for yourself, really. And I think, yeah, I definitely accept my compared to, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a process, I think. And yes. I think there are days where you don't feel 100%, but they're also very good days. And I think that's normal, despite if you've been eating disorder or not. You don't feel happy in your body every single day. But, I completely agree. I completely yeah. agree. And I think, you know, you put it so beautifully there that, you know, it, regardless of how we look, a, it's not the most important thing about us, yeah. but, and it's got nothing to do with our worth and our value and how we contribute to the world. But B, there's always going to be people who, you know, don't like it or see there's a flaw and none of us are perfect. You know, we're all these, yeah. we're just, you know, our imperfect, wonderful selves going about in this crazy wild world, trying to, to do the best that we can and um, it's not about chasing after perfection. It's about, you know, embracing yourself, um, you know, body, mind and soul and just letting yourself be rather than trying to manipulate things to make yourself into something that you're not. Exactly. Now, how have you navigated working in the fashion industry, you know, whilst being in recovery? Has that been triggering? Yes, <laughs> very much. Um um, the thing is, I started in the fashion industry when I was, this is something I always like to um, express, like I started in the fashion industry when I was already sick. It's not like I came into the fashion industry and I became anorexic because a lot of people like to, you know, give me that image, well, you work in fashion, so you're anorexic. Like now my eating disorder, as I said, started at 15 and I started working in fashion already at like 18, 19, like in especially talent scouting because, as I said, it was just something I've been thrown into and it worked very well for me. It was a good opportunity, especially with my eating disorder because I was working from home. I couldn't see myself working in an office at that uh, point and doing like a regular job from nine, nine to five. I could never have done that. So in that sense, kind of saved my, my life, my, saved my income. If I look back, I would have never been able to do something um, more, you know, strict and more with a regular schedule so working free definitely was my in my, my income um but yeah working in fashion i mean these days i'm not triggered by it at all because um i look you know i mean you have to judge girls and women i only work with girls in fashion um by their appearance by their bodies and for me it's just something that i can completely um, separate. Um, I do not compare myself to, you know, any any model or whatever, especially as these girls are so young. And um, it's more for me being surrounded by the people from like behind the scenes, you know, especially when I wasn't doing so well and people would just continue to compliment me on how great I looked. 
you know, and I was like, you know, I wasn't, I remember one day in Paris, I was like, I think three years ago or something. And um, I just got off uh, a Zoom, a Zoom therapy session in the morning before I went into the, the office. And it was, I was just doing, not doing great that week. I wasn't doing great. I've lost weight and I just got off a therapy session feeling really, really alone with my thoughts again and just not a good day. And I went into the office and somebody opened their arms and said, honey, you look so amazing. What did you do? Like, it's just, you know, people are really, I mean, that's just how the fashion industry is. Um, it's a very official industry, obviously. It's very, yeah. You know, I mean, being skinny and I mean, again, being skinny, um, has definitely helped me in, in that sense that it's also race industry. I don't think I would have been in the position that I have been and been able to work with the kind of people that I have worked for at my time in the fashion industry as a black girl if it wasn't also for like thin privilege definitely not if I was short and curvy and maybe even like dark skin I would have never ever have worked with most of the people that I work with that's what I believe um uh yeah it, it can be very triggering but for me it's just and that's something that very important to me that I've realized for the last, especially during the lockdown. It's a tool, you know, it's a tool for me. I do not stand with like these beliefs that most of these people have. And um, I've cut myself off completely emotionally from this industry and from my job, if that makes sense. It's a tool. I realized that without this job, for example, I wouldn't be able to do brown skin memories because obviously you do need an investment, you do need money to do this kind of project. So I wouldn't be able to do that. Like that's the motivation to keep up with that. <laughs> as well as, you know, I, I work a lot of, a lot with like um, African clients and uh, agencies in Africa, which helped me like as my dad is from Africa, just, you know, being able to, you know, at least bring more representation into the fashion industry in that sense, because I definitely, see this goes different than like a white color, like, you know, I'm more sort of trying to bring in like black girls into the fashion industry. So that's also good motivation and something positive that I can um, get out of it. Um, so yeah, I don't let these triggers get too much to me anymore. But during the years, of course, it was hard. And I've always felt like, well, you cannot go in recovery and at the same time work in fashion. And it's just, doesn't it out like but of course you can I mean I'm not my job you know what I mean it's, as I said it's, uh, it's a tool I think um, there's so many triggers in the world but yeah especially in fashion for sure because the fashion industry is the way it is I think that now when I talk to friends who do not work in fashion they're also oh, but a lot of things are changing you no know? like the bodies are more diverse and it's, you know all sizes I'm like well seems to work with the advertising inside, nothing is really changing, you know. Mm. It's the same world. It's just the trend now to have maybe a plus size, as they say, girl, or since last year to have black girls all over. For me, it's already way too much because it just feels fake. I'd rather go back to all white with this overloaded, you know, um, mm. fake diversity that's like coming in. It's just too much to have one fashion show with 30 black girls. It just doesn't feel real to me because a year ago we had one in a show so it's just 
it's a trend. I think it's a trend to accept in fashion to accept black girls, to accept trans girls, to accept um, plus size girls. But that's not really, from my experience, what most of these people personally believe. It's just selling itself really well right now, and um, that's another story, you know. But do yeah. you sort of feel it's it's tokenistic in a way? Yeah, for sure, definitely, of course. I mean, especially uh, due to social media, and I think especially since like last summer when this, I experienced that um, performative Black Lives Matter, especially in fashion wave came through. I mean, Black Lives Matter as an organization has been here, I don't know, for like the past eight years. So it's not like something new, but the fashion industry and social media in general, I mean, it's not a bad thing that it's been pushed, of course. But just from some sites and some organizations, it doesn't feel real. If you go on Blackout Tuesday and then on Wednesday, you're back to normal. It <laughs> doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it, but from the, I think from that period, from that summer, as this movement has been so present on social media, um, a lot of people, a lot of companies, like especially in fashion, would just use it to be inspired by it, to like, you know, keep this, and up in their castings and in their, you know, performative activism, as I feel. Mm. Yeah. It's so interesting to get your to get your insights on that. And I think uh, you're mm. right that unless you're you're working there behind the scenes and you're also, you know, part of that um and you're black and you're there and you're you're experiencing it it's 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 all very easy for people to make judgments from the outside looking in but it's very very different when you're actually in the in the thick of it so thank you for for sharing yeah that. i think it's it's really enlightening yeah i think especially for companies i mean in all files but especially in fashion it's easy to perform on social media that you're diverse and that you book black models but if you for example, then I have a company with, let's say, 200 or 300 employees, like in the fashion industry, if you're some big fashion house or whatever, and you don't have a single black employee, you already have the answer. And this is how most of the houses look like. You know, there are no black people behind the scenes. Only, I mean, for the most part, only, you know, in, in the talent to, to give that image that you're diverse, but behind the scenes, uh, you're all white, so it doesn't really add up from your side. No. Now, racial trauma, as you alluded to before, was a really significant contributing factor to the development of your eating disorder. Can you talk to yeah. me some more about that and explain to me how that how that came about? Well, as far as I can remember, um, it's just since I have been a little girl, um, I think. Um, already at the age of nine like or eight years old I just felt like I don't know I just didn't belong and uh, I've grown up in a very white environment in a smaller town and um, I was the only black girl um, in my class and my kindergarten and um, when I was that young I didn't realize I didn't have that you know of course that feeling for my identity, like, well, I'm a young black girl, you know, I didn't think about that. It's just at some point when you start going to kindergarten or like preschool, it's just the other kids, the white kids, or even the teachers make you feel like, well, you're not a, you're not part of this group. And that's when you realize, okay, well, what could it be? What's wrong with me? 
um, when I was obviously that young, I didn't think, well, it must be my skin because, you know, I didn't see that difference. It was just, I thought that, you know, people just don't like me and it could be, I don't know, I just felt like I'm not good enough or I'm too, uh, I'm too much, I'm taking up too much space. Um, because I used to, like a lot of my teachers used to say that, um, especially like later on at the age of like 13, you know, when a teenage years, that I'm too, too loud, that I was too, um, you know, talking too much, which is funny because other people in my, um, private, um, environment will tell me that I'm too shy and that I'm not talking enough, you know, it was the complete opposite. Like, so I always felt like, okay, uh, something is wrong with me. I, I'm not sure how to act. If I say too much, say too less. But yeah, um, racial trauma for me was definitely just um, the lack of understanding that who I was and that I was black or at least like a mixed race to still identify, of course, as like black in the society and also for myself, but that I was black and that's okay. You know, I'm here, I'm black, I'm the black girl, okay, and I know how to um to live my role back then but for me just you know being the black girl was an absolute you know it was just uh, a tragedy and it was just the worst thing that you could be to be black I, when i was like eight or nine and my teacher or somebody would ask me like where's your dad from and the answer is nigeria so it's like africa i was so terrified that somebody would ask me this question because who wants to be from africa you know and um so yeah it's all these little things of just you know being ashamed of your background being feeling like you don't fit in and just all these little comments especially from from other kids which i think is so important i mean there were just kids as well so it's really about how you're being raised how you raise your white child about you know teach them that there are different races in this world different skin colors different backgrounds would be very helpful i think for most of black kids in this world to you know actually avoid in the first part of the trauma because it already starts in kindergarten and high school by the comments from your your white peers so that's the main issue actually because yeah that's where the whole trauma already you know starts just being called names or being excluded for basic yeah for the color of your skin and that then led you to thinking that somehow if you changed your body that maybe you would be, you know, would fit in more, wouldn't be too much, wouldn't take up too much space. Yeah, I mean, at first it was um, a lot interesting. I think at the beginning it was just, um, especially when I started with like the anorexia started, it was just um, a good way to... Um, distract myself because as I said I was like 15 going 16 when I started to realize okay what has actually happened to, to me for the last few years how do I feel where do I stand now with my identity and it was very painful to just think about that and you know anorexia really helped me to to just numb myself and not have to you know to just avoid this issue for a very very long time and um and then as it started i was just i mean that wasn't the plan but i got this new identity for the for the, the time of 
the thin girl. I was the skinny girl. I was no longer the black girl because I used to be the black girl all the time. And then I was the thin girl. Suddenly, I was the skinny girl who should get into modeling, who was, you know, I had a new identity. And uh, I developed a new identity with, like, when my anorexia started. So, and it was really hard to let that go because um, I was so scared that I have to go back to, you know, like being the black girl when, um, yeah, it was really something that I think also distracted others. Like you wouldn't, the first thing that they wouldn't see, I thought wasn't maybe my hair, you know, when I take off my braids, I have like a huge afro. It wasn't maybe my hair or my skin. It was just, oh my God, she's so thin. Like that's what people saw and that like end of conversation. It wasn't really anymore about being different for my my skin color or my hair. It was just like, she's so skinny. And maybe they didn't take that as a positive thing. But for me, that was still better than being the black girl. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What do you believe needs to change in terms of this so that other people don't, you know, fall into that same um, trap? Well, I think that, as I said, we need to, or also parents of all backgrounds need to educate or raise their children, like, inclusive, you know, like there's so many ways to teach young kids already about you know, different backgrounds and different uh, skin colors. Um, I think it really needs to change already with the kids, as I said, because that's where it starts. And to raise children that are aware of, you know, why why other kids may look different than, than they do. Um, I think that's actually the most important thing. And then, of course, to, um, yeah, empower the young children as well. So, I mean, because if I would have been confident with who I was and the way I looked um, and with my skin and my hair at a young girl, I think I would have not lost all this time to my eating disorder. I don't know. I just feel like I can say this 100%. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that if I would have been more aware of who I am or who I can be, despite, you know, feeling excluded or oppressed or not, like fitting in um, it would have definitely changed a lot so I think what needs to change is really the way that we raise children the way that we talk to children school programs all over the world need to happen we don't have this you know lesson of his- black history anywhere in the world I think maybe in America it's there a little starts a little tiny little bit but even there black uh, it's white parents still have the opportunity to say, well, I don't want my white kid to be get involved with black history. So it's not really like, yeah, it's not really a present topic anywhere in schools or in, in kindergarten. I think it just needs to be, we need to talk about this and we need to not just um, close our eyes and be like, well, I don't see color, all kids are the same. They are not, obviously. <laughs> we are not the same. And it's it's absolutely not, a bad thing to say, well, one one is white and one is black because this is how it is and I need to um need to be able to, you know, address this to children, I think. Yeah. Did the thin white female eating disorder stereotype that is so often portrayed in the media impact mm-hmm. on your ability to seek help or on people recognizing that you had a problem? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, to seek help, yes, 
because when I used to also watch some documentaries about eating disorders, you know, when I for the first time started to look up anorexia, for example, on the internet, I thought, okay, well, maybe that's, you know, you can do these self-tests on, you know, if you have, do you have an eating, do you have an eating disorder? <laughs> so uh, when I looked this up and I got into some YouTube documentaries from um, German hospitals or whatever, yeah, I only saw white, especially for some reason, blonde, thin girls. <laughs> so um, I didn't really see myself there, even when I saw group sessions um, from people, I mean, online, where it was like 30 girls in a group talking about their experiences. They were all white. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a problem because I just felt like I was just scared of, you know, to reach out and then especially having to go inpatient, being, again, the only black girl. And I would, you know, not feel like my my experience would have space in this environment. And I would not be able to talk about what actually has been um, contributing to my eating disorder and the way I felt. So for me, that was a barrier for a long time because I just thought, what's the point of, you know, going inpatient with a group of white girls when you can't talk about your struggles and nobody understands anyway, like what's the point of of going? Uh, that was the mindset that I had for a very long time. And um, well, with regard to my therapist or um, recognizing, well, nobody saw the link between, you know, um, being black and growing up in a white society and the development of my eating disorder. I once had a therapist, she was quite close. She told me um, she could see that there was an identity issue, as she said, and that I was using my anorexia that time um, because I, to identify as anorexic girl because I didn't know who I was. But she didn't link it to my skin. I mean, during the first session, I was like, okay, well, she's close. Maybe this is going to work. But then in the second session, she gave me some list of, like, you know, um, ideas for internship to look into, you know, who I want to be. And she really got it in a completely different direction again. So, yeah, it was, it's definitely a problem. And it's definitely, definitely been a barrier. Um, I've just kind of accepted it for myself that, um, if I, for some reason, ever decide to do therapy again, then I will have to do a lot of research and find a black therapist. And I most likely will not find a German-speaking one. So I have to do, I don't know, some Zoom therapy with an American therapist if I ever do therapy again. I don't know. This is something that I've decided for myself because it's very tiring to go through. I've been to a lot of therapists and it's very tiring to never feel understood, which I guess is an issue in general with therapy. You do not find the right therapist um, immediately, maybe, but it's definitely more difficult when there is also, you know, the background is also a different one. Was social media a contributing factor to your eating disorder? Not really, I think, because, you know, when the whole, when I was like, like 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I mean, Instagram, didn't even exist or it wasn't that present. I mean, there were other platforms, of course, but for me, it wasn't, uh, no, not really, especially not these days anymore, you know, because I'm not in that mindset. 
I mean, I can only imagine what it would have been if I grew up with TikTok or Instagram and my eating disorder has probably been. I can only imagine what these younger girls now have to go through. It must be hell. (laughs) I feel exactly the same. I'm so glad that that wasn't around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember which platform we used back then. I mean, well, Facebook and I mean, some forums, but that's not really social media, more like the internet. But I've also been into this yeah but now the answer is probably now now in november 2020 you established brown skin mermaids and i would love you to share with our listeners what that is all about and the reason behind why you established it um well brown skin mermaids the mission is to empower black girls young black girls like um, I do, or we do, I hire coaches, I work with coaches and therapists, like black female uh, therapists and coaches. Is The mission is to um, yeah, empower these kids and their identity and to um, offer them safer spaces and uh, community building at, from an early age on. Um, it's basically something that I think I would have needed so much when I was young. So um, we do empower them in a very, of course, playful way and creative way. It's actually, as it says, mermaids, it's all about fairy tales. It's about, like, I named the uh, um, project Brown Skin Mermaids because when I was young, Ariel was always my favorite in Disney princess, even though we had nothing in common. But so in this space, we can all be Ariel, you know. No matter uh, that she's been white and had red hair, red, great hair. So, um, yeah, it's about empowering kids and um, offering them these spaces. And I think it was especially, yeah, I started it in November 2020. I had the idea already for a longer time before, but I've never really had the time to, um, to really sit down and just, you know, think about a name about a logo and really like get going. And I think that it was also especially during the last year when I was forced to stay home a lot and I didn't work as much as I used to, but I really, you know, time became something so special. And I've been thinking about how I've wasted so much time of my life with an eating disorder and how what a pity it was that I was now locked into my apartment. <laughs> For some reason, I've been thinking about, well, all these things that I could have done during the past years. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just time for me, just the meaning of time is something very precious in a way because I felt like I've wasted a lot of time. And um, yeah, so all these thoughts and this kind of like reflection, I started with the project and um, it had me also think about what could have been different and what would have helped me to not, you know, first of all, develop an eating disorder in the first place. So this is how, you know, I started with the project. Like really all these thoughts of like, you know, just the kind of depression that kicked in and doing lockdown of having wasted my life to an eating disorder. That's how I felt or like so much my youth, basically, to lost my youth to an eating disorder and what I could, how I could use that maybe in a more positive way now. Um, is to like move forward and I think that the project is definitely also <laughs> empowering me um it's a good way to just you know feel like maybe I can give back from what I've learned from what I've realized for myself um through all this 
and yeah, it's going very well. I'm very happy of like in Germany how well, I don't want to say big it became, but well, yeah, the feedback that I got and um, the support I have I have from like most people is like really amazing. So I'm really happy that it's there because there are basically no or not. I mean, not for girls only. There's no other space for girls only. Black girls only. So I mean, at this at this moment, so we're very we're highly requested <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I just think that's so fantastic that you've created something that you know would have been so helpful for you and that you're looking to be able to use your experiences to to help in the prevention um, of eating disorders uh, among black girls. And I, I think it just sounds like the most beautiful, safe um, space where they can blossom and, you know, find their voice and, and feel, feel like they belong. So yeah, well done. Um, it, it sounds simply incredible. What is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? I think that it's okay to, you know, feel and, um, all sort of emotions. It's something something that I learn every day. It's absolutely okay to be angry and to be sad. I have even like these days. Of course, I have days where I just not days in a row, but there are da- days where I feel like I just want to you know cry now. I'm gonna cry for a bit. I just want to be sad. I may not know the the reason, <laughs> but it's okay to just you know feel your emotions and. Um, you do not have to numb yourself. You do not have to function and be, you know, pretend. Give lot people this perfect image of you being happy and having everything under control. And because it's not, you know, you, you don't know what's happening behind closed doors um, in general. So it's like there is no reason to um, to just try to up, uphold this image of like picture perfect life or families or whatever. So for me. It's the most important thing that I've learned is definitely that it's okay to be angry and to just feel whatever I want to feel. And um, something that may be um, a small thing to somebody else can be a big deal to me and I can be angry about it, talk about it. Um, yeah, that's a very important uh, program for me because I used to numb my feelings a lot with my eating disorder. Let those feelings flow. <laughs> Perfectly allowed. Yeah, it's very important. (laughs) In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who is going through an eating disorder? It is important, especially I think if you're a family member or yeah, like a parent or you know someone close, to read up about eating disorders as well, like how how eating disorders work. You know that it's not about. Like educate yourself. If you know for for a fact that somebody's struggling, somebody that you're close to, somebody that you love is struggling with an eating disorder, educate yourself around you know around the topic to understand, for example, that it's not about weight, it's not about looks, and um, just because a person may look healthier doesn't mean you know the person is doing so much better. So that's very important, I think, to develop an understanding about eating disorders as illnesses like in general, because it's not the job of, you know, the, the sick person to educate you around, you know, this 
with issues, but uh, I think that as for support, um, well, I think you know, just let let yeah, let them know that they're not alone. But I I think also um, maybe I mean for me it was hard when people would like put too much pressure on me or asking too many questions and just like leave them space. Just tell them you're here, they can come if they want to talk to you, but don't pressure them and don't try to, you know, try to, I don't know, just get into their, because an eating disorder, I think, can also be a safe space, if that makes sense for yourself, and you're just so isolated at some point. And for me, I was so isolated for a while that every person that was trying to reach out to me, it felt like a huge attack because it was just, overdone you know it was overwhelming um it's easier to just let people know that they can reach out to you if they feel like talking that's what i think is more um helpful than you know just um checking in on somebody every hour and every day it can be very overwhelming i feel <laughs> it's just too much yeah so really good. just say yeah it's such good advice and finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still in the midst of their eating disorders, getting up every day, facing recovery, doing their best, um, you know, but they're, they're tired, they're battle weary. And what, what words of wisdom would you like to leave them with? Well, what helped me is um, just to, you know, just remember that it's always it sounds so cliche and cheesy, but it's always a brighter time. And there's always, you know, better times um, are always, there is hope, as I can always, as you say, like there's always, there is hope for, for light and um, at the end of, you know, the tunnel. And it is hard, but it won't feel like this forever. It's like you have to get through it in order to get out. And it's just, you know, you don't have to do it all at once also, just day by day, go through every single day and then take the next day and take it step by step and just look at the steps and not the whole staircase in front of you. Um, yeah, I think. And don't be so hard on yourself either, you know. It's not, recovery is not perfect and it's okay to also, I think, have bad days and cry a lot and feel like it's all too much as long as you remember that it won't last forever it's not gonna last yeah thank you so much for joining me and sharing with me your experiences on a whole number of levels it's been so uh, inspiring and enlightening and um thank you for having the vision with brown skin mermaids and just for speaking your truth because it's an incredibly powerful um powerful thing to do and thank you for for choosing the end eating disorders platform to to do that on thank you (laughs) thank you so much this is the end eating disorders podcast brought to you by lockaway self-storage and podspot Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head?